The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. Scream Kings podcast. I'm Nathaniel Darkish. And I'm Max George. Candyman ain't a he. Candyman's the whole damn podcast. Obligatory, Max. Woohoo! Yes, I mean, we've got, you know, upwards of 70 episodes where you get very excited whenever we do our tagline, so. To be fair, everyone knows we're going to be talking about Candyman. Uh, this movie we've been waiting for for a very long time. Yes, way too long, to be honest. I feel really connected to this neighborhood. Cabrini Green. It was the projects. I just moved in around the corner. The old candy factory. I'm an artist. You look up a candy man. He's the monster that's part of this neighborhood. Why are you drawn to this? I'm hoping to spread the story all about Candyman. The mirror invites you to summon him. But I, I thought that the word, uh, the way it was worth it. Yeah, I did too. Uh, I have some feelings, like I always do. They're not bad things. Movie, and we're gonna get into that. Yes. Uh, so to clarify, we are talking Candyman 2021, directed by Costa. With uh, Jordan Peele, Wynn Rosenfeld, and Nita Costa as the writers of the film. Yeah, we we did the original Candyman. It's one of both of our favorites, I would argue. Uh, incredible storytelling. A lot of that horror that doesn't really f- need to be supernatural or unknown or you know occulty, whatever you want to call it, because the plot and the story really is just terrifying in and of itself, and it's. Candyman in general, this movie and the original, are an excellent, like, example of horror movies telling beautiful and tragic stories through the lens of horror. Yes, absolutely. I, I think, you know, yeah, let's just, let's hang a lantern on it. Like, the, both films, you know, both the, uh, you know, 90s film and, and this, uh, Sequel, reboot, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's really a sequel. I don't know why they're bothering with the the idea that it's a reboot because it's really not. This new film uh, and and the original are both really good examples of you know social commentary. You know, looking at at real life horror as well as um, you know bringing in supernatural elements and things like that. You know, it's it's very sharp, very well done, very thoughtful horror in a lot of ways that um, I feel like you know doesn't feel necessarily preachy or on the nose I mean you know there there are weaker moments in in any given film than others but like as a whole I would say both of these Candyman films are very good about kind of digging into you know issues of, of race and violence and poverty and all of these kinds of things that are are so um difficult for for people to talk about i think and and they do such a good job of, of bringing out a clear interesting uh morally complicated message yeah and i i think sometimes when you do kind of get the dramatic pieces in cinema uh or kind of the very dry stale period pieces whatever you want to call them uh, it loses sometimes a lot of the interest of people Horror, to me, and especially movies like Candyman, are why we have horror movies. It allows us to kind of disassociate from that terrible stuff that happens in life, but we don't disassociate. Wow, we don't disassociate so far that the message is lost. As we've done this podcast, how many movies have we've talked about that have such poetic moments and beautiful messages? in the backdrop of demonic possession or a a cryptid or, you know, you name it. Horror 
should be valued more than I think it is in the cinema world. And don't get me started on Hereditary and Tony Collette and all that, but <laughs> it's yeah, underappreciated for the messages that it can tell. For sure, and and I think you know it, it's not a coincidence that with uh, Candyman, you know, if, if we look at who was the creator of the original short story that you know kind of kicked all of this off, yeah, it's Clyde Barker, you know, a, a man who has used horror as a way to explore issues of uh, sexuality, especially, you know, LGBT issues and things like that, where, you know, he gets to uh, kind of share what he has felt like, you know, is, is the otherness and the alienation that he's he's experienced in society through a lot of his horror writing. And so, yeah, of course he would be a person to bring this kind of story forward. Um, and, and then, you know, looking at this current piece, yeah, like Nia DaCosta, and Jordan Peele are, are both, you know, names that I think in Hollywood you can associate with, like, very thoughtful, social pieces of horror that, you know, we, we you know, I, I think it's kind of just a, a marriage made in hell in, in the best way um, <laughs> uh, of, you know, kind of bringing forward these, like, socially conscious horror uh, creators and... and you know, finding a, a story that can be told and, and telling it in a way that is worthwhile and not, you know, again, preachy or, you know, just too ridiculous. Uh, because, yeah, it's really easy for a horror movie to go down that route. I mean, look at the, the stupid Karen movie that just came out. <laughs> or even uh, The Purge to some extent, you know? For sure, yeah. The Purge is not subtle. Um, I would say some some of the Purge films are better than others about having, you know, interesting uh, social commentary, but even then, it really just bludgeons you with it. Like, there's no subtlety, there's no moral ambiguity in it, it's just, you know, oh, one wow. way of thinking is right, the other one is wrong. Right. Well, so without further ado, let's kind of dive into the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I've already kind of rambled a little bit about, you know, it's, it's good use of... Uh, social commentary, but um, one thing I really like about this movie right off the bat is that it builds on the Candyman lore in a very interesting way. Uh, in, in a way that I felt like was true to the original uh, while expanding on it. Yeah, I... You know, when you get a sequel, a remake, whatever you want to call it, you are always worried about kind of that sequelitis. You know, you know a lot of the, the plot points already, so you're not very intrigued or terrified. Uh, but this, I want to call it like a remaster, but it is a sequel at its core. Um, I love the idea of taking an iconic horror movie like Candyman and making it sequel, you know, following a timeline that fits into modern day society. I think that is done, or that is done in a very fun way for a lot of movies. Kind of forgetting Candyman 2 through ABC XYZ. Just taking it back to the original and asking the question, what would happen in 20, 30 years? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, looking at that and, and saying, okay, so we have Cabrini Green, which is this infamous, you know, project housing uh, community that is just, you know, falling apart at the seams. You know, it was dark. It was violent. It was full of crime. It was full of gang violence. It was, it was not a pleasant place to live. I mean, you know, we in in the first film we see, you know, literally, you know, words spelled with with feces on bathroom walls, and we see, you know, death, and we see, you know, people terrified of of their neighbors, and this one has has you know moved the timeline forward and says, okay, so what happens in these areas where project housing is a thing? Well, gentrification happens. You know, money comes in, developers come in, the the property values have been shot to nothing, and they rebuild it. And they make it uh, a place where you know, it's trendy, and there's artists, and there's, you know, musicians, and, and there's hip restaurants, and all of that. And so, what is the Candyman story if suddenly this place isn't this terrifying existence, but is a place where... Um, you know, the, the black community, especially, you know, black artists and stuff, are being celebrated and are being spotlighted um, instead of just being cast aside. Like, what does that do 
to this lore of this supernatural monster. Well, and I, I really like uh, kind of the thoughts that went into that to some regard about, you know, our original Candyman, like you say, the racism and the race issues kind of thrown into your face. That is the horror of what these people are dealing with, uh, the projects, the poverty, their race. And, and in this sequel, I was really stunned by it. Was it kind of felt like a love letter to me in some regard about you know, the gentrification, but also white savior guilt that Calibri Green has turned itself around and it's a lot better for people to live in and it's because of the white people and now it's... Yeah, all of this money et- that, that white people have poured into it, now, now they, they've, they've fixed it, now it's good for everybody, right? Yeah, yeah, but then the root of all of that is, hey, don't forget what happened here, you know, like... Just because the apartments are now nice, new, and shiny, it doesn't erase everything else that happened. Um, and it harkens a lot to me of the Black Lives Matter movement, the Say My Name. I mean, the Candyman, you have to say his name five times. They made that a very prominent point in this movie of saying the name. Um, and I was really moved by that. I thought it was a, a subtle way to say... We got problems still. Just because we spend money to try and fix the system doesn't mean the system's fixed. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a great point. You know, the the say yeah, say my name thing really is kind of this brilliant thing. Uh because yeah, it takes that existing mythos uh of Candyman and then it really ties it into things like the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that, where we have, you know, people that have been horrendously murdered by police officers or have, you know, had awful things happen and there's just no repercussions for it. You know, Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, you know, a lot of these, these people who they have had awful things happen to them, they were murdered and, you know, the, the rallying cry so often on, on social media is say their name or, you know, don't forget it. You know, this is a person who died. It's not just uh, a statistic. It's not just some figure. It was a human being with a life and and with meaning and, and, you know, wants and dreams and cares and a family. And so say their name. And so taking that and plugging it into Candyman is really interesting. And this this movie in particular, it's not really about the... I mean, it is about past Candymen, and we'll get there. Uh, but it's really the story of kind of a new Candyman emerging from that pain in the past. And again, uh, this kind of ties in to what we're experiencing nowadays of we can't forget. And just because it happened in the past doesn't mean it won't happen now. And, and I think Anthony McCoy, the kind of the protagonist, so to speak, of the movie, is the representation of that. That you know, all of this terrible stuff that happened in the past is going to emerge in the present day if, you know, systemic change is not happening. Yeah, and, and if we don't th- at least think about it and acknowledge it and, you know, try to address these issues in a way that is honest and open. Um, so I want to shift gears real quick to the, the multiple Candyman's... Candyman? I don't know how... <laughs> The Candyman can. Yes, let's let's talk about them because this is kind of yeah another one of those ways that it built on the lore of the first film where you know we we really just talk about the original Candyman you know the Tony Todd character but we don't get into sort of the ripple effects through time of of exactly how that has maybe meant that there have been more than one. So that is a new idea that's presented in this film, but I think it's kind of brilliant because it's basically ways for him and his legacy to live on in new ways and in new iterations in time, and you know, in a way that will be applicable to this new era. And so, yeah, we first see that with the you know story from the seventies with this uh, you know kind of kind of crazy guy who just is very sweet-hearted and, you know, is just trying to give kids candy and nothing gross or malicious there, and then is is blamed 
for you know the by the way the the urban legend of the the razor blades and the candy and cops come and beat him to death one i i thought that that was a really good uh indication of how uh violence tends to to work especially in um you know impoverished communities and um you know really in any minority group where where a lot of times you know justice can be just taken out of the system entirely and it's just okay well once the police show up they'll just beat you to death they don't even have to do a trial um that was especially rampant i think during like the 70s and 80s um but but also i love this idea that that uh story tied into another urban legend because i mean yeah what is candy man if he's isn't uh, a bunch of urban legends kind of mashed together right you know he's the hook-handed maniac that attacks the lovers, and he's also Bloody Mary, and he's also half a dozen other things. And so, yeah, bringing another urban legend into it was mm, real good. Yeah, and you have a note here that kind of talks about the tonality of the two movies, and I think that is something that Nia DaCosta and Jordan Peele really just knocked out of the park. This definitely feels like it's set in the same universe as the original, that it is a direct sequel just, you know, 20, 30 years in the future. Uh, it doesn't miss a beat in the way it's presenting itself and the way it's telling the Candyman story. One of my favorite moments in the original is just kind of the horror of a lot of the art and the media that you see within the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, again, setting it in kind of this artistic kind of world connected the two. It was really, really done, beautifully done. Um, well, and, and to take it one step further, like, if you look at the original, you know, Candyman's story, he was an artist. Yeah, so That makes yeah. it that much better. <laughs> so really, this is a solid, solid movie. Uh, it was worth the wait. For me, uh, as a horror critic, I was a little disappointed, and we'll get to some of those items, because I don't think it's a perfect movie, but the message and the aesthetics that were presented uh, we're really moving to. If you're not moved by this movie, there's something going on, or you're fighting it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I do want to highlight a couple more things before we move on to things that maybe didn't work as well in the film. Um, oh, of course. One, one of the things that I really really liked was the way that it kind of showed us the past, and it showed us you know the plot of the first film, um, as well as you know uh, other important events that kind of lead up to the events of this film. Uh, through those those shadow puppets, oh, looked great, very creepy, very effective. I was on board. <laughs> well, and they were like over the top. You know, sometimes in movies when they they use these kind of cinematic things, it, it feels a little sticky or kind of a cliche or just the animation is off. Uh, th- smoothed so well in this movie it really did feel like these puppets just kind of were birthed out of out of Candyman. yeah yeah and and just the way they looked the way they moved uh it it was unnerving and it really did a good job of filling in all of the audience members who just you know saw the trailers and just went okay i gotta see that movie without having seen the original um uh, a number of people, including some of our friends uh, that I like saw it with or that I've talked to, have not seen the original film, and I, I think that's a shame because it's obviously amazing and totally worth your time. But they were able to follow the film and, and be and were able to connect with everything and, and connect with the lore and everything that they needed to know as backstory because the shadow puppets were so effective. You know, it, it really made it so this film managed to stand on its own very well even though it is a sequel. Um, just also the cinematography, like we've talked about, uh, I really loved the score, too. Uh, there was that really long opening scene where they're kind of going through the city with the fog, and there's this very spooky, like, Gregorian chant meets some synthet- um, synthesized pop music. Um again just the atmosphere of this entire damn movie was so well thought through mm-hmm. it's hard it's hard to critique the movie as far as like visuals and plot telling 
Yeah, yeah, and and also like the costume design was great. The uh, the design of the art pieces looked fantastic and really, really just upsetting in the best possible ways. Um, like just yeah, the, the look and feel of this movie was spot on. Like I, I really can't highlight enough like how gorgeous this movie is. Yeah, it's one to definitely buy. All right, so uh, this is a lot of the good. Is there anything else, Nathaniel, you wanted to kind of parse out from what we really liked? Um, I I also just want to mention that like I I felt like our our main character was uh, very sympathetic in a lot of ways. He was interesting. Um, I was able to follow his motivations. Um, so like especially yeah with our protagonist, very strong character. I really liked. What, what he brought to the role and, and what the character went through as, as his character arc. So, anyway. Well, and I think everybody, though, at the end of the day, all of the characters really felt grounded. Uh, no one did anything that really fell out of character, but also out of what a real human being would do. Um, I, I, I will... <laughs> say that there's a couple characters that felt a little cartoonish to me, but we'll get into Yes, those. yes, I agree, uh, but as far as their motivations and their intentions. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, well yeah, let's, so let's move into to some things that didn't work as well in in this film for us, because, you know, we, we have mostly been frothing in the mouth about how, how awesome it is, but as you said, it isn't a perfect film. I think it's a very good film. Um, I would say certainly one of my favorite uh, horror films of, of the year at the very least, but but yeah, there are there are some things that didn't quite work as well for me. Um, so let's have you go first though, because I think you have a few more than me, so that way we can uh, bounce uh, back I, and forth. Sure. Uh, one of the first moments that kind of started to bug me right at the very beginning um, was there were some scenes and some little plot moments that felt little. I don't want to say contrived because they didn't feel really synthetic. They just kind of felt random um and they were kind of parsed through the movie uh i don't think that our, our main character anthony had to be the boy from the very beginning of the film i felt that was kind of like a throwaway plot grab so i i do agree that that him being the baby from the first film is well because 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 that's what anthony is is he was the baby from the first one yeah the, yeah the, the 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 kid um at the beginning of the film is is the the villain character um uh william burke yeah so like to me it's reminiscent of what they did in star wars with ray i felt like the message would have been a little bit more impactful for me i mean it was very impactful for me but the idea that he was some sort of chosen candy man predestined to this fate, uh, it was just like, okay, but why couldn't he have just been a regular guy? That would have felt more intimate, more relatable, more personal than, you know, being the chosen of candy. I, I think that's fair. I, I, I'll say that it feels plot convenient, for sure, but I kind of like it anyway. Um, to, to me... Him being, yeah, the baby from the first film that gets saved. What I like about it is that he is the one who, you know, his being saved and, and the events of the first film are, are what took away Candyman's power. They stop saying his name, they stop being afraid of him, they stop thinking about him. And so him being the one who brings back this legend and, and brings it back to people's consciousness is really kind of like deliciously ironic um and i love that that he is an artist like Candyman. that that even though you know he he survived and he escaped you know being a sacrifice as a baby i kind of love this idea that like he was shaped by that event even if he wasn't consciously aware of it that 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 event made him into an artist and led him back to this in, in, in like yes it, it's extremely plot convenient but it still kind of kind of slapped for me i don't know like <laughs> just just the the like how delicious that irony is that the person who you know basically stopped this legend is now the one who is bringing it back 
and and is becoming the new Candyman. Like that was, I don't know. I yes, it's very very outrageously like 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 in in real life the odds of that kind of thing happening are just so astronomical. It's it's not even worth mentioning. But like it, you know, I mean, we had we we had throwaways in disbelief, and if I'm gonna throw away some disbelief, it's for things like this. I I kind of liked it anyway. But I do agree. Like it, it is inherently kind of ridiculous. <laughs> and that's okay. I, I think what my real issue is with the movie is there were some moments that I felt like a micro kind of examination of the film and its plot weren't as strong as if you took a breath and kind of looked from kind of a greater macro kind of view. As a whole, the movie is phenomenal, but if you dive into some of these specific moments and specific plot sections, it's kind of like, uh, we, we didn't really need this. I agree. I agree. I, I think, yeah, there are, are little bits that you're like, what? Did but, I have to tell but, this part of the story this way? Uh, yeah, and I see that you have a point about the teenage girl moment, because that, to me, was just... That was... <laughs> someone did not QA that script page. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, so let's talk about the teenage girl. So... To me, I I just I hated them as as this thing. Like it, it made for a real great trailer, right? Like these girls doing the the Candyman thing in the mirror at school, and then you know getting torn apart while a girl is hiding in the stall. Great, real 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 catchy. Should have just been the trailer. Like if that was the trailer, nothing else was in the trailer. That was all they gave us, and then it never was in the film. I would have been totally fine with that. But it being in the film just didn't really fit. Like, we had this very tight, very kind of insular story. And then we just kind of had this random, like, oh, yeah, and he's also killing other people, too, I guess? Uh, Question yeah. mark? Like, like I, I, and I think that was probably done to show us, like, hey, um, he is killing it uh, indiscri- or indiscriminately, like the original Candyman. Because otherwise, most of the kills are very specific to, like, Anthony's life. but still, I think there just would have been a better way to handle it, because it really just felt like a random aside, like, oh, hey, no, let's just have a random slasher scene. I usually, when I see a trailer, I want what I see in the trailer to be in the movie. And this was probably one of the first times I realized, like, this this was a hook, pun intended. It had no bearing on where we needed to go or what we were trying to do. At all. At all. Yeah. And maybe, like, the weird, subtle poke to bullying. Um, but outside of that, it just... Bleh. Maybe it's, it's fine. It is what it is. <laughs> well, yeah, and I also just kind of hated that, like, it did sort of go out of its way to, like, show us these girls are terrible, and then they get killed. Because, like, straight up in, in the original Candyman, he just kills whoever. Like, he doesn't care. He's gonna kill a baby. Like... So we don't need it to be that, like, all of his victims are, are justified to us uh, as an audience. I think that was a, a misstep. Yeah, I agree. Fully agree. Another part that I kind of struggled with here and there is I know up to this point we've talked about how, again, this movie not only portrays a very pragmatic story through the lens of horror, uh, but if you looked at certain micro moments, they kind of fell apart. Are, mm-hmm. I, I felt like the original Candyman was a supernatural entity. Yes. Uh, it was uh, it was the lore and the legend of Candyman and kind of how he got started. Uh, but that wasn't the main focus to me about in the original Candyman. The main focus, of course, was the Calibri Greens and the ghetto and learning about this kind of racist past and the struggles of the people within the, that community. This, the sequel, while yes, it still accomplished that in a very good and appropriate way, I felt like at times I was trying to decide, I don't know, it felt like there were two plots, the supernatural Candyman, and then also the subplot of let's remember gentrification and Black Lives Matter. And I, I didn't feel like they meshed all the time. That's fair, yeah. I, I do feel like there are moments where it kind of forgot what it was trying to do with, yes. with those things. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I, 
it leaned into the supernatural, like the girls' moments that weren't really needed or required to help enhance the storytelling that it was already doing. Yes. Um, I, I, I definitely agree. I, I think, you know, for the most part, it pulled it off, but there are little moments where you're just like, so how does this contribute to what it's saying? Because some things did feel very generic um, virtue signaling. Um, and again, there wasn't that much of it, but when it was there, it did kind of irk me. Um, yeah. Because it wasn't letting the story stand on its own. It was just trying to say, like, hey, like we as filmmakers have uh, the correct opinion about things. It, yeah, it, it. I don't know. I felt like you were kind of merging in one lane into the other, into the other, into the other at certain moments. But mm -hmm. overall, overall, again, this is a phenomenal movie, and the story that it's telling, when it allows it to just kind of breathe, is really impactful, very moving. Um, another thing that wasn't really working as well for me was just that, like, the acting was kind of inconsistent throughout. I would say, like, you know, our protagonist was pretty solid the whole time. Um, so, I don't, I'm gonna butcher his name, uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, uh, who played Anthony. Um, I, I would say he was very good pretty much the whole time. Um, Tayona Paris, uh, who plays uh, his girlfriend, Brianna, um, she was kind of hit or miss off and on. Like, I, I feel like she, she is good, but they didn't necessarily know what to do with her at times. And I felt like her, her acting kind of reflected that, unfortunately, because I don't think she was just getting as strong of direction as she needed at times. Um, the, and, and as I mentioned before, like, some of the characters were really, really just kind of cartoonish in, the, in a, like, a frustrating way like the gallery owner um who is one of the first victims that we see he just felt like a cartoon character like like every like ridiculous stereotype of like a uh, pretentious hipster white guy that they could think of they just threw in there and, and yeah he didn't feel like a person and his acting didn't sell me on it at all yeah see i really liked uh brianna's character uh tayona paris um, was her acting, like, top-notch? No. Um, I mean, yes, but not consistently so. Yeah, yeah, I would uh, say, like, like, most scenes she was great, but there was a handful of scenes I was like, I don't know, I think she should be reacting to what's happening in much more, uh, visceral of a way, especially towards the end of the film, where, like, there's these awful violent things, and she just kind of, like, is, like, staring and looking kind of freaked out, and I'm like, that's not... Yeah, or the scene where she comes in after the art kind of curator has been killed and she's just on her phone and completely mm -hmm. oblivious to the blood on the floor. Like, you can be on your phone and your eyes still know what's going around. Uh, yeah. That's more plot, though, than her actual talent. Yeah, I, I wasn't kind of... I don't know, I didn't have any real issues with her. I thought she did a good job. Um, the two gay boys, though. Man. Oh, man. Yeah, they were they were definitely kind of stereotype characters. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a little a little problematic to some regard, but and they were fine. Like, it's not they weren't so bad that it warrants a discussion about <laughs> stereotypes in movies, right? Yeah, they. It, it was yeah. There were a few moments I kind of raised my eyebrows, but it wasn't ever bad. You know, as a gay guy. I fully support, like, Drag Race and all of our gay lingo and blah blah blah. There comes a certain point where it feels incredibly, like, disingenuous and, you know, you can only stomach so many Yas Queens and Honey and Girl before, yeah, I just don't care about what you're saying. Like, talk to me for real. What, what are you trying to say? Especially when they were, like, woven into scenes where it was, like... <laughs> really radically inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a little 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 extra. Yeah, yeah, we we get it. You you all, you know, you writers have gay friends. You can you can you can reproduce the lingo kind of. You've seen seasons 1 through 6 of RuPaul's Drag Race on Hulu. Now it's time to broaden your horizons. So 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 now uh one thing I I really wanted to dig in on was I 
I would say my biggest problem with this film was the villain. Um, so, as I mentioned, you know, Candyman really isn't necessarily the villain of, of the film. Um, the villain that we have is William Burke, who um, is the the little kid who sees the you know candy giving out Candyman beat to death uh, when he was a child, and then you know is still living in Cabrini Green, and he is still you know kind of part of that community, and he's the one who tells Anthony all of the stories about the different Candymans, and and you know sort of opens his eyes to all of that and, and sort of sets all of this in motion and, and eventually tries to make him into Candyman and, and tries to, you know, ensure that this legend returns, right? I had a little bit of a hard time following exactly what his motivation was. I I will fully endorse and support that. It made no sense. Like, he was trying to be kind of this mentor to our protagonist and teach him about Candyman, and maybe that was, um, you know, convincing or tricking him to be Candyman because he knew he was the baby and he was a, worked at the laundromat, and it just, it was tough. It was That could have been handled a lot better. Yeah, and, and like, it's one of those, like, I've thought about it and I've I've come up with explanations that I'm okay with, but I don't think that that was in the text. It's it's subtextual, and, and, you know, by thinking about it, I've come to a resolution that I'm okay with. But, yeah, I, I don't feel like it, it gave us a clear answer of, like, wait, so why is he doing this? Especially because, like, looking at his past, Candyman murdered his sister, and it was, you know, there's a lot of upsetting stuff about everything that happens over or to him in his life relative to Candyman. So why does he want Candyman back so badly? To me, the answer that I came up with was that, you know, basically, if you have Candyman, like, yes, that is a actively bad force in the world. It is destructive and and bloody and and negative. But uh, I think maybe where he was coming from is that people remember things that happened though. You know, just because it is a, a curse and a monster doesn't mean that we shouldn't remember it. It was kind of the idea, I think. Because it's unpleasant, we don't want to look at it. And we've taken away its power by not talking about it. But maybe we should talk about it in his mind. That may be the way to deal with the bad things that are still happening in Cabrini Green is to have a Candyman again because then people pay attention enough to the bad things that happen. Does that make sense? Like, Yeah, absolutely. And that would fit very well into kind of the themes that we've already talked about in Candyman. However, you've got to execute that. Uh, to, yeah, like, like if he had explained that for like five seconds, I would have been like, on board. But they, they just, they never explained it. I, I think this is something that, I don't know, maybe it just got cut in post. It, they, they trimmed it back a little bit too much. I suspect that there there probably is, uh, you know, if they were to make an ex- expanded version of the film, that would hopefully get cleared up a little bit. Um, but yeah, that was that was my biggest problem. It's just that I, I felt a little bit lost, and I had to yeah spend a little bit too much time kind of connecting those dots myself. It goes back to what I was talking about a little bit earlier about there were moments that felt very cheap. Um, you know, the girls in the bathroom, and the boy situation, and then this. There was nothing that made me believe that this guy had any sort of malintent. Yes. Um, what we saw in his past, how he was helping Anthony, there was nothing that made me think, oh, this guy's got something up his sleeve. And, and I get the plot twist. Ooh, everybody loves a plot twist. Uh, but there has to be some sort of thread to pull that kind of takes your breath away. Without that thread, it really isn't a plot twist. It's just like, oh, okay, I guess he's that guy, right? You know? Mm-hmm. Cool plot twist instead of, <gasps> it's a plot twist! Yeah, exactly. They they just needed to sell me on it for 30 more seconds, and then I would have been like, yep, I'm on board. Let's do this thing. Yeah, like, if they had stuck the landing on this, my just with making him make sense, I would have been like just smitten with this movie, like way more than I am now. Which I again, I like this movie a lot, 
but I would be freaking, you know, raving and frothing at the mouth constantly if they had just stuck that element of the landing. I would even excuse a lot of the, you know, annoying teenage girl stuff. I guess the only other thing I have as far as things that didn't work as well for me was just it wasn't that scary. Yeah, it definitely was not scary at all. <laughs> yeah, like there are ideas that were scary. There are moments that were pretty creepy. But as a whole, it really just didn't get under my skin like the first film did. Like, I would say the first one is much scarier than this one. And that one isn't that scary. Um, I just, I, I fully expected that this movie would have been absolutely terrifying. And it was, you know, it was a good movie, but it wasn't a scary movie. Yeah, I know Scream Kings do not believe in there is a one type of horror movie that defines all horror movies. Uh, you can have horror comedy, have body horror, demonic horror, uh, thrillers I consider to be horror. Horror is an umbrella term. Uh, but this was edging on the side of like a drama, like without Candyman and kind of his, his plot story, this would have been a drama. That yeah, that was the horror to some extent, and the murders too. Yeah, like there was there was some pretty gruesome stuff and and stuff like that. But yeah, it just I just wanted it to be like a little bit more in your face with some of the gruesome stuff because I mean yeah, it's showing us the art of the kill, right? The the you know bringing us back to that that Candyman origin, and also just yeah. I just wanted those the the intent scenes to really just hit it out of the park. And it just kind of was like, oh, that was eerie. That, that was that was a creepy moment. Not, I am upset and scared in my in my seat. Yeah, I watched a movie the other day called the Boy Behind the Door, the Boy Behind the Wall. I can't remember. Boy Behind the Door. Yeah, um, it's very much a thriller movie, but that it was eerie and suspenseful enough that I was tight. I could not read kind of that moment where what is going to happen next. I cannot look away. I can't look at anybody. I'm not going to my phone. I'm not going to my boyfriend. I'm not going to anything. I have to problem. And that's what I wanted Candyman to be. <laughs> uh, it, it just kind of fell flat because of the horror spent. What happens next? Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else to to hit on with with Candyman, or have we shared uh, all of our our big thoughts here? That's it for me. All right, so let's jump to ratings. So, uh, first up, screams uh, in in a move that will surprise no one. Yeah, four. Because it, as we just said, it's not very scary. <laughs> and I took it a further. I, I went three. Uh, I was not all. Yeah, or, that's fair. Or unsettled, or, you know, any other kind of horror-related adjacent option. I was... Yeah, yeah there's a few gross-outs, there was a few gory moments, but, you know, it was fairly standard fare. I mean, you know, there was even the moment where a nasty, you know, fingernail gets ripped out, and I'm like, okay, well, that's gross, but that's not scary. Yeah, and I think my favorite, like, horror-esque moments see kind of massage of candy mirror or glass reflecting outside, like subtle little Candyman drops that you kind of had. Mm-hmm. Um, cr- Crowns-wise, uh, what did you end up giving it? I was torn. Um, I wanted to give it an 8. I wanted to give it a 7.5. Then I wanted to give it an 8 again. And then I was like, is it an 8.5? Is it a 6.5? I gave it a 7.5. It is it is a good, well-developed, well-made, beautiful story movie. But there's just enough for me. kind of knocks it off. That's fair. Uh, I gave it an 8 because, yeah, the things that I liked about the movie, I really freaking liked. But there are those things that, that really kept it from just being totally next level. And I wanted it to nail those. I really, really wanted this to be a 9 or a 10. But, you know, I'm still happy with an 8. 
Okay. Um, well, next on our docket, I have another Be Real game. Um, Be Real game. I had weird inflection the last time I just said it. Uh, so do you want to play a game? Uh, I don't know if I have much of a choice. I mean, it's true. I will just start reading it off. Okay, uh, so for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the Be Real game, uh, because this is the only sixth, or yeah, only the sixth time that we've played it on the podcast, and it has been probably like five or six episodes since we've done one, uh, the idea of this game is I am going to read the uh, description. Uh, I, I've added taglines this time. Um, and like IMDb ratings and uh, an IMDb uh, review for a bad B horror film. Or I, I'm going to do that with three films. Um, so two of these films are absolutely real, and one of them is one I have made up. And the idea of the game is to see if Max can identify which one is my invention. Uh, so without further ado, our uh, game number six is titled Fins. Fins? Like skinny fin? Weak no. fin? F- fins! <laughs> with an F. Like Jaws. Yes, these are all shark themed. Alright. <clears throat> Alright, first up from 2015, we have a film called Shark Exorcist. With the tagline, Satan has Jaws. Oh my gosh, every time we do this, I think I've heard the worst, and then this happens. Oh yeah, just buckle up, man. The description. A demonic nun unleashes holy hell when she summons the devil to possess a great white shark. Overall IMDb rating, 1.3 out of 10. This might be our lowest rated one ever. Well, with a description like that... Yes. And uh, the review that I found for it gave it a 1 out of 10 and described it as uh, being like watching a porno without sex. (laughs) (laughs) Film... Uh, I had... Oh, it... Just magic. Magic there. Magic in that writing. Maybe I'm talking about my own. We'll see. Uh, the the next film is Ouija Shark from oh, 2020. I, I must see this one. The tagline, gonna need a bigger board. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> a group of teenage girls summon an ancient man-eating shark after messing with a spirit board that washes up on the beach. An occult specialist must enter the shark's realm to rid this world of the deadly spirit ghost once and for all. Overall rating, 1.8 out of 10. And the uh, review I, uh, I found gave it a 1 out of 10 with the uh, description, with a budget of $216, you know what you're getting into. Or... Is our false game, or sorry, the, the false film in the game, Buzzjaw 2, Straight From Hell. Take the wheel. The tagline, his saws are worse than his bite. The description. I've had a very terrible day of work, and I feel like this is not making things better, Nathaniel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, The description, the feature-length sequel to the short film that introduced the world to Buzzjaw, the buzzsaw-tooth shark monstrosity resulting from the unholy union between a great white and a demolition robot. Oh, I'm glad we have a sequel to that! A feature-length sequel to a short film. Uh, This time, Buzzjaw has returned from the grave after lightning struck the ocean and is back to drag the surviving members of the diving team that killed him back to hell. (laughs) Overall rating, 1.9 out of 10. And the uh, review gave it 1 out of 10 as well. Uh, And 
says, who honestly adds all of their blood and gore in post? So, is the fake film Shark Exorcist, Ouija Shark, or Buzzjaw 2, Straight from Hell? I just exasperated my hand. Brought down. I have no idea. Just blew my laptop all over. That's how pumped I am for this. Uh, okay, 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 okay. Remember, two of these actually exist. I know, that's the hardest part. Um, uh, okay. I am wearing, currently wearing a Ouija board shirt, so definitely rooting for shark board or Ouija shark or whatever. Ouija shark. Yes, yes, shark. The last one felt a fair bit fabricated. The first two definitely were just so bizarre that they could be real. The fact that the third one was a sequel, full-length sequel, But a nun summoning the Antichrist shark is a lot to digest. It's true. Not for shark. It's all uh, yep. a mm-hmm. I mean, it is the one that, that references a porno. <laughs> I'm going to go with the third one. Uh, you beat me again. Woohoo! Ah, yes! I also am by my very click clackety keyboard. You've probably heard it today, and I did not look any of those up, even though I was tempted. Yes, unfortunately, Buzzjaw 2 Straight from Hell is not a real film, but I am looking for investors. Um, but Shark Exorcist and Ouija Shark both are real, and they both have, like, Literally, like, $300 budgets. I must see you, Ouija Shark. I, I, I think it's one of those where it goes, you know, into the realm of, like, so bad it's good, and then goes past it again, into just so bad it's not even, like, not physically painful to watch. Um. Like, I don't know if, if like, Mystery Science Theater or Rift Tracks could even save it. Read me your description for the third one again. I think there was a line that sounded very Nathaniel-esque. The feature-length sequel to the short film that introduced the world to Buzzjaw. The Buzz-Sawtooth shark monstrosity resulting from the unholy union between a great white and a demolition robot. This time, Buzzjaw has returned from the grave after lightning struck the ocean and is back to drag the surviving members of the diving team that killed him back to hell. Yeah, I think it was the unholy union part. Dang it! I, I I couldn't think of a better way to say it, and I knew that that one might reveal my hand. That, that is a, a kind of a colloquialism, whatever, however you say that word. Colloquialism. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Um, but your colloquialism failed you! <sighs> I really was hoping that my awful tagline would have sold it. I mean, it was definitely awful. His <laughs> saws have... are worse than his bite? <laughs> I mean, when I told my wife that one, she literally high-fived me. It was the best. <laughs> she's well, like, that I... is the most atrocious thing I've ever heard. Yes. I feel like because I have succeeded so many times in this game, we should retire it to our guests. Make them yeah, you might be too good at it, which <laughs> is honestly a problem. But, I but just... rest assured, I have so many bad movies in the docket for this, so I, I can really do some very upsetting things for future guests. The edge I have is I know you very I mean, it's true. We have known each other for, like, 15 years. Indeed. All right. Well, on my victorious guessing powers... How are you staying spooky? I have been staying spooky in a way that is just have, has just brought me such tremendous pleasure. Uh, so I have been listening lately to the Pine Deep trilogy by Jonathan Mayberry. Uh, I've you, I've referenced it a few times on the podcast before, um, but I just barely finished 
the third book in that trilogy, which is Bad Moon Rising. And good heaven, this is just such a freaking tremendous horror series. Like, the characters are relatable and sympathetic and interesting, and you want to cheer for them and you want to cry for them. The The whole setting is, is phenomenal. It's basically this town called Pine Deep that is kind of very, like, real-life Salem-esque and that it's, like, you know, notorious for being, like, the most haunted town in America and, like, it has leaned into that for its tourism and all of that. So, you know, there's, like, always a big Halloween festival and everything. And so it's, like, this story over the course of a month between all three books of uh, a, a very evil power that is trying to use this town and and the things about it to spread evil ultimately throughout the whole world and it's brilliant and wonderful and the writing is some of the best writing i've ever read like just uh, basically i want to just give jonathan mayberry a hug and just say thank you thank you sir you have given me hours and hours of entertainment you are the best well, I have to Yeah, I, I really am just utterly smitten with the series. And uh they're great on audio, by the way. I, I love the, the reader, I love the voice work and all of that. And it's one of those series like the first book, absolutely loved it, gave it five out of five stars uh on Goodreads. Second book, even better. Third one blew my freaking mind the whole time. And right now I'm re- uh, listening to a, a bunch of like short stories set in that town. Also, so freaking good. Well, what I'll be reading next. Yes, I honestly... I, I don't want to spoil anything, but what I'm going to say is just that he, uh, Jonathan Maryberry does this really good job of taking a lot of like elements of like folklore monsters and stuff like that and, and leaning into the elements that you never see in like horror movies or or books or things like that and making that kind of the, the like central features of, of what makes these things work and it's so brilliant and creepy and it's uh, just a genius and I, I, he's won a bunch of stoker awards and all of that kind of stuff and that dude freaking deserves it because oh my good heaven he is just the best and i'm totally wanting to go to um, StokerCon this next year, and he's going to, I think, be the guest of honor. And I'm, it's taking a lot of self control to not immediately buy tickets just so I can, like, stalk him and just go, like, let me touch your greatness. Well, I feel like I don't have anything near as passionate about. Yes, I am. I, I, I have been telling, like, everyone who will listen to me about how good these books are. Hmm. Well, time to Google search. First one is Ghost Road Blues. Um, how I've been staying spooky is I went to New York with work for a while. Whenever I travel, I download all of the horror onto my iPad and watch as many as I can on the airplane. That way, the will even try to interact with me. They'll look at my iPad screen like, nope, he's a weirdo. Good. Uh, two in particular, I've watched like six, uh, but two that really stand out. Uh, one I watched on the plane, the other I just watched a few days ago. The first one is The Old Ways, it's a Netflix original. Um, and after our episode, our previous episode with Magda, I got really curious in kind of her Latina heritage. This is a beautifully done movie about the exorcism story, uh, a Mexican demon, and then old heritage, old mythology. How that. Uh, I was incredibly stunned. This movie, Demon is Fun, the kind of possession steps are really unique because it's a story we don't really hear about. Um, and then The Exorcist 2 is just a ton of fun. Uh, definitely recommend. It's on Netflix. Uh, no excuse not to watch this. Like, great. Uh, there are a few little cheesy moments. I think it's doing a nod to some of that classic 80s or lines. Uh, but it still made sense. Uh, the second one I mentioned earlier in the show is a movie called Boy Behind the Door. It got a 5.7 out of 10 on IMDb, which surprises me 
because it got a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Gotta love critics. Uh, it's like I mentioned earlier. It's more kind of thriller suspense, but I could not relax. One of those movies that has you on the edge of your sheet seat entire time. It was great. Not the edge of your sheets? Uh, I mean, depends on where you watch it. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, that one you can watch on Shudder. All right, everyone, stay spooky. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreenKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You could also support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash ScreenKings. Stay spooky.